0: The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio
1: very good afternoon. You're listening to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. This show is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. For a free copy, head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Well, I'm Marcus Jones and joining me today to tell their story is Simon Thomas. Simon seemingly had it all. A successful career as a TV presenter on Blue Peter and Sky Sports, a loving family and a strong Christian faith. But on the 24th of 2017 he describes in his new book Love Interrupted how his world fell apart just three days after being diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer Simon's wife Gemma dies leaving him to break the news to his eight-year-old son Ethan his book tells his story of navigating grief and hanging on to his faith by his fingertips we'll hear exactly how he pulled himself through later but before we get to that, we took it back to the very beginning and I started by asking him what life was like growing up.
2: So the first 10 years were pretty idyllic. We lived in uh, Norfolk, uh, the first three years in Cromer on the coast, where my parents now retire to, and then my dad was vicar of a church uh, in Grimston, which is a rural parish just outside Kings Lynn. Um, we lived in this big vicarage amongst the fields. Uh, Just had a great time there. Kind of those days of riding the bike around the village after school. The days seem to go on forever. Hot summers. I I think we just forget the bad ones when you look back. But I had an amazing time there. And I loved it. And, you know, a lot of my best friends were... Uh, churchgoers as well so you know Sunday school wasn't a chore it was just like another chance to see your mates and hang out with them and stuff and then we moved down to Surrey when I was 10 and that was quite a big culture shift not just in terms of where you're living we were kind of in Cheam in Surrey so it's uh, it's a kind of commuter belt Reggie Perryland, as I call it and and suddenly I'm launched into the private school system to go to a prep school because it was founded for vicar's sons so there's no way a vicar can afford private school so i went on the free and you know the cultural change in that and you know it's an amazing church though in that, that dad led for 13 years and again a lot of my closest friends in that period of life and i'm still mates with some of them are, were, were guys and girls from my church so you know church was a really important part of life and i always say this i'm really grateful to to mum and to dad although that was his job and it did make him proud when his kids turned up to church rather than got to an age and said I'm not coming again you know I knew that was important to him but it was never ever ever forced on us that this is what you should believe it was kind of this is what we do believe as a family and you know in time I was able to kind of work it out for myself but um yeah you know, I can't I look back on my childhood and think you know I was I was really blessed to have two loving parents who stayed together to live in different places experience different cultures and stuff and um yeah, I think looking back, and I was pretty blessed.
1: Mm. Well, do you remember a moment where it didn't become your parents' faith and became your own?
2: I remember a moment where it it became very real to me, and I was age seven at the time. And we uh, we were at home as a Saturday morning, and Dad had meetings. Oh, why do vicars have so many meetings? But anyway, he had meetings. <laughs> and it just rained all morning we were going to sort of stir crazy and then we had lunch and Dad was free in the afternoon and the, the sort of sun came out so he said well, let's let's get in the car and go to these woods nearby called Massingham woods and let's go for a walk and so off we went as a family and we were walking through this big pine forest and in amongst all the pine trees that are totally unclimbable and I was at that age I just want to climb every tree that's available but you can't get up a pine tree and there was this kind of big yew tree and it was climbable so I climbed up into it and then eventually i sort of sat down in the u-bit with my legs dangling there my mum was stood there holding my little sister hannah because she was still very young and then becky my next sister who was six at the time a dab was stood there and it starts raining again and mum sort of looked at me and said i think we should move to the other side of the clearing to get in the shelter and we're kind of that's ridiculous because we are already sheltered and about a minute later she said it again you know i think we really should move and again we kind of Dad said, oh, don't be silly, G. we're fine here. And then I, I can still, all these years later, I can still hear the tone in her voice. I can see the look in her eyes. She looked at me, and then Dad again said, we we need to move now. And so I think to keep the peace, Dad said, "You know, come on, let's get out the tree, and let's, let's move across, keep your mum happy type thing. And as we get across, so probably 30 seconds later, in terms of what it sounded like, it sounded like a tornado jet was coming fast through the forest above our heads. And I remember looking up, and there's just this channel of fire above our heads and this ginormous explosion and then a huge thud and as the smoke cleared the tree where I'd been sat in just a minute or so before had been basically blown apart by what's called ball lightning that happens quite a bit particularly in Norfolk and we ran crying, screaming back to the car and some friends of ours from our church, some very close friends came round and sat with us that afternoon because we are traumatised, why wouldn't you be? And we did go back later that night and I've still got the picture on my desk uh, of us stood by the tree looking at what had happened. And our friend Roseme asked mum, why did you feel you should move at that point? Because there's no sense to you mm. needing to move. And she just said, I, I just heard a voice that said you need to move and you need to move now. And I just believe it was God. And, you know, at that moment, some people might think that's just a, an amazing coincidence. But at that point, it became real. I felt there was this God out there who was looking after us that day for whatever reason. He, he, he protected us from what was going to happen. You know, and years later, I, I, I remember speaking at a church, and the, and the guy who led the church came up to me afterwards, and I didn't talk about this story at all. He just said, I was on Blue Peter at the time. He so said, I just want to pray for you. And as he was praying, he just said, I, I get a sense that something happened to you when you were young, when you were six or seven, that gave you a really stark reminder in a very real way that God is real. And I said, yeah, I nearly got killed by lightning and I still have that picture on my desk and when I've had those moments with everything that's happened in the last 19 months. Sometimes I look at that tree and remember that God was there that day and he's actually been there ever since.
1: Mm. Perhaps we'll come back to that story a little, <laughs> little bit later. Just a little story yeah, to get no, us going. I think that's it's fa- fascinating. Um, so you did decide a career in media, TV. Um, yeah, yeah, Where did that desire come from?
2: Well, I used to get asked about that in terms of Blue Peas, like was it a, a lifelong ambition? being honest i used to watch the show as a kid and think that would be an amazing job i didn't ever sit there from being honest and think i would ever do that job but it was really at university i went to birmingham university in the early 90s and we had a an internal tv station called Guild tv i mean the output utterly awful looking back but they had a, a proper studio because pebble mill which was the old bbc studios in birmingham long gone but they got a lot of second-hand equipment from there so they built a proper studio with a proper gallery and three cameras earpiece mixing and everything. it was all there pretty low rent but it was there and I started doing a program on on a Friday lunchtime watched by nobody and out <laughs> in the guild the days for flat screens it was just little portables everywhere it was on mute called the lunchbox and I just I just got a bug for it I really enjoyed it I enjoyed the thrill of doing live TV even though no one was watching <laughs> And I remember, as I left university, uh, um, one of the, the girls who would worked on the station for quite a while, she just said, "What do you think you're doing next?" I said, "I don't know. I'm sort of thinking, I'm thinking I'd quite like to do this." She said, "Look, you're really good at this. I think you should go for it." And I said, "Yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm going to. I'm going to go for Blue Peter because that's for me the best show out there." And yeah, it was a three and a half year journey in the end. I, I remember going back to my parents' house in Beckles. Dad had moved from Cheen to Beckles. That was where he had his last parish. Uh, it was a blisteringly hot day in July, I think it was, in the summer of 1995. And I'm, I've got a book on how to become a TV presenter, written mm-hmm. by Toby Anstis, who'd done CBBC, He's now on Heart, I think. And I knew I had to make a showreel tape, and I wanted to write lots of letters to different TV production companies and TV stations to see if i get some work experience, just to get my foot in the door, start meeting the right people. And I had my list, my kind of hit list of people I was going to write to. And I just thought, crikey, I haven't really prayed about this, you know, this is a perhaps just a fanciful dream and I'm about to I don't know why I just give myself three years to make it I'm about to waste three years because God might not actually be in this so I thought right I'm going to pray about this and so I remember sat in the room I used in in Suffolk in Beckles and just prayed and I just said God I just I just need a sign as I begin to in these letters and I begin to think about a show I just need to know you're in this that this is this is the direction you want to take me and about an hour later dad had gone out and got on his old crusty Apple Mac as it was at the time and I was about to start writing the first letter and I looked to my left and Dad has got his sort of pile of Christian magazines and I can't to this day remember what it was called the magazine but I remember seeing on the front the kind of side sub headlines of the articles inside it was one saying why we need more Christians in the media and it'd be written by Steve Chalk who I then end up working for a few years later and Pam Rhodes who was doing Songs of Praise at the time and it was one of those moments I don't know if the people listening or watching this have, have sat in church or at a a big, a big Christian event, or whatever it might be, and as that person up the front speaks, you feel like you're the only person in the room, like that talk is just for you. And it felt like this article had been written just for me. And it was all about how as Christians, it's no good as just complaining from the sidelines about we're not enjoying what we're seeing on the TV, or we don't like what's been written in the newspapers, or we don't like what we hear on the radio. If you wanna change things, you need to do what Jesus did, And you get involved he didn't park his tent on the side of Jerusalem so you come to me he went to people and obviously people did come to him but he he got his hands dirty I just thought this is it the green light I mean God's timing is often different isn't it but it was three and a half years uh, after that point that I finally get the Blue Peter gig but that's that was the moment I thought God is in this and I've just got to remain faithful so when I was working in Selfridges not too far from here for two and a half years selling suits I'm thinking this wasn't quite what I dreamt of and doing a running job at CBBC at the weekends and LBC Radio in the week. Um, I just had to hold on to that day and that promise. And eventually,
1: eventually in end of 1998, it becomes fulfilled. And then having faith within that industry, was that something that you found particularly difficult in BBC at Sky as well? I think Blue Peter was easier in
2: so as it was a show that was comfortable reflecting faith. And, you know, at Christmas, they never shied away from the Christmas story. It's one of the Blue pea traditions, isn't it? Putting the, you know, the figures into the, into the stable scene on the Christmas show that they do every year and having the carol singers coming up the hill like they did every year. You know, they, Christmas was about the Christmas story and they never shied away from that. I had the opportunity to go to the Solomon Islands and film for two weeks with these amazing Christian brothers called the Melanesian Brotherhood. this amazing group of guys who go around the islands and, you know, do lots of amazing things in terms of ministry. And I was able to speak quite openly in that film about my faith as I kind of wrapped up the film at the end and reflected on the two weeks with these guys. I was able to talk about my faith. It's more difficult when you're presenting Manchester United against Tottenham, talk about your faith because... You can't really come on air and say, uh, you know, welcome to Old Trafford, big game this Saturday at lunchtime. But before we get going, Graham Souness and Jamie Redknapp, let me just tell you, God loves you. He loves you, and he's died for you. Right, Graham? Tell us about the free changes Tottenham made today. Yeah, it, 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 there's no scope for that. You know, one thing I did do a few years back because I, I did want people to know when when social media was kind of exploding and we were on Twitter and and all those kind of things. I, I remember looking at my profile one day and and I can't remember what I'd written, but. Uh, in amongst it was the fact I was a, I was married I was a dad I was a Norwich City fan ex Blue Peaks presenter now Sky Sports presenter nowhere do I say that I'm a Christian and I thought I'm going to just put that on there and I made it the first thing about my profile not a massive thing but I wanted people to know and it was hard in terms of It was quite a nomadic existence going around doing the football because you don't have loads of time in the office you're essentially traveling to a ground you get there you have a bit of food on the bus and then you rehearse then you do the football game and then everyone goes gets in their cars to get home as quick as they can so you don't have those long periods with your colleagues where you're able to kind of talk about your faith and you know i remember you know a lot of people from sky coming to gemma's funeral uh, and i never shied away from talking about my faith and my struggles with my faith because of what had happened and quite a few came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I feel bad that you didn't feel you could talk like that when you were working with us. And part of me felt sad that maybe I hadn't. But, you know, it's, it, was, it was always there, but it was a harder environment in which to be kind of open about your
1: faith. Mm. So let's talk about Gemma. You met her kind of as your careers, I guess, in some ways getting off the ground. W- what was meeting her like? Love at first sight? It was
2: unexpected at first sight in that I had gone... Bizarrely, she ended up working for... So I worked for the Oasis Trust. That's how my path with Steve Chalk crossed all those years ago. And I ended up working in their media department when kind of the TV dream looked like it was probably over. And I was having to think, what do I do now? And anyway cut a long story short, Richard Bacon does something naughty, the door opens, and and somehow I land the job. So I end up doing that. And and a year or two later, Gemma ends up doing the very job that I was doing at Oasis. And I had apparently had a conversation on the phone about a project they wanted me to be involved with. And then our our old boss, well, my old boss, Ivor Peters, was having a, a sort of champagne soiree at the end of September, sort of late summer party. and. Uh, Gemma was going to as well, but I didn't know Gemma at this point, didn't know she was going. And I'd actually gone there with my eye on someone else from Oasis. I'm not going to say their name, but I, I did. And I was like, I got there, I tried, tried my best to chat her up. Didn't go very well. Retreated <laughs> back to the, the bosom of, of the lads. And uh, and then I saw Gemma. I'd never seen this girl before. She looked, you know, just what she was wearing was beautiful. and And I got introduced to her. And it was just... You know, there's moments in life when you meet someone and you kind of you feel like you've been chatting for 5 minutes and realize it's been half an hour, you know. And just I just felt an immediate connection with them. What I liked about her is that I sometimes felt because of what I did that people would talk to you as Simon the Blue Peter presenter and not the person. And it wasn't that she wasn't interested in that, but I felt that she was actually talking to me and interested in me, not where's the best place you've travelled to? And what's the most amazing thing you've done? And I broke the lad's rules that night on the way home. I, I got her number and I texted her. We used to have this 48-hour rule in the house, <laughs> but I lived in, but I broke it, I didn't care. Um, and I met her a couple of weeks later and, and we, we began dating from there. So it was, yeah, it was totally unexpected, but that's, that's one of the joys of life, isn't it? Mm. It doesn't always go quite how you planned.
1: Yeah, and then you get married a few years later. Yeah. But in your book, you say the, kind of that beginning of the marriage wasn't particularly easy, right?
2: No, we 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 had to put up with, for want of a better phrase, endure some some quite tough stuff. You know, Gemma had a had a physical problem um, that meant, uh, you know, in terms of consummating our marriage, we couldn't for the first few months, and it was desperately hard for her, in particular, because she felt less of a woman because of it, and you know without going into too much detail she she has to have an operation quite early on and for the first eight months of our marriage we're actually not too far from where we sit here we're going to counselling once a week sometimes the two of us sometimes as as individuals not the kind of thing you dream about doing in the first few months of your marriage You, you don't but you know it's one of those things that it's either gonna sadly push you away from each other or you just say we're gonna get through this and that was kind of our attitude is look it's 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 not perfect, but then what in life is? And we just need to get through this. We will get through this. And I think going through that and other experiences that came along did make us stronger because we were having to deal with what I describe as storms pretty early on.
1: And you shared a faith. Was that mm. important at that time?
2: Yeah, definitely, because I think when you are really struggling and you're tr- struggling to work life out, at least when you've got faith, you've kind of got you've kind of got that reassurance that somewhere in all this, God is somewhere in this and that he will you know, kind of bring us through this and, you know, just being able to get prayer for stuff from, from you know, members of our home group who, or, or whoever
1: it may be was, was really important in terms of just when it was really tough just holding on. So your boy Ethan comes along a little later. What, what did it mean for you personally to become a dad?
2: Everything, I absolutely. I'm, that, that day he was born in the September of 2009 in St. George's Tooting in London. I can't, I mean, you're a parent yourself. And parents listening, you, I just you can't describe it. You can't describe the time you first hold your child. I mean, it would have been a bit spectacular because Gemma's labor was quite long, and to try and push things along, the midwife asked her to hover over a loo, and he literally burst into this world <laughs> down a toilet. The, the midwife performed a wonderful slip catch. And, and then I, you handed this there he is, And I just I can't describe it. just this incredible, just love you feel instantly. Because you know, I think before you become parents, you're a bit worried about, You know, am I going to have enough love? Am I going to be able to do this? But as soon as you hold your own flesh and blood in your hands, you're just like, it's
1: instant. It's yeah. just,
2: I just adore this this boy. I
1: remember looking into my boy's eyes and no one can prepare you for that moment. No. You go, and they he, gaze back. He is mine. Yeah. Uh, he is from, from me. It's something know. quite powerful, isn't it? It's, it's utterly amazing when you think about it. We will talk about Ethan, I'm, I'm sure, mm. when we, we come on to the book, but... What does he mean to you now in terms of um, he's now nine? Yeah, nine, nine. Yeah. Um The impact that he's had on your life over yeah. kind of the past decades, what, what's that meant to you?
2: Everything. I, the relationship I have with him now, it was always re- really, really good, but it's now remarkable. I describe him as my son, but also my best friend. We're like mates as well as father and son.
1: In the book, you talk um, about the, the periods um after you're, you're, you're married and, and you, you work in, um, you come across this issue of um, depression. Mm. Um, give us a sense of what it first felt like to realize that you had a battle on your hands.
2: Well, I had two bouts of it and the first came um, a few years back and it was after we had the second round of IVF. So we we found out after having Ethan and we began to you know, try to have a another kid that Gemma had a very serious fertility problem that meant her chances of conceiving naturally were very, very remote. So we looked into IVF and we decided we'd give it two goes. And the first time it didn't work. The second time it did work and Gemma fell pregnant but very sadly only a month later she miscarries and At that point we knew our dreams of Ethan ever having a brother or a sister are gone. Uh hugely, hugely difficult for Gemma because again she felt it's another physical problem that's mine. It's my fault. And I didn't deal with it very well, not in terms of her, but kind of my own anger and bitterness that because we live in an age where not just physically, but in terms of online, we're very aware of whether when other people are having kids, the scan photo goes up or huge celebrations. Kid number four has arrived. And our perception is, is that our friends are popping out kids like a, a cash dispenser pops out £10 notes. The truth is, it's not always like that. I had that hugely angry bitter period where I just couldn't stand to hear news of anyone else falling pregnant Uh, and I think it drove me to quite a bad place the counsellor we had after that failure, that that miscarriage said Simon's in his cave and she said to Gemma you kind of need to leave him there until he's ready to come out my problem was I stayed in there too long and as I did I went into a much darker place but with that bout of depression the first time I'd felt it it's deeply disconcerting um, you feel very very isolated, very alone that no one else is feeling like I'm feeling that kind of struggle to get out of bed in the morning but somehow I managed to keep working throughout that period because I just found that in a bizarre way going on air which for people watching and listening will sound weird if they have no experience of ever being sat in front of a camera how can that be your kind of release from it but it was because when the red light went on and the count in your ear went down to one we're on air it's like a switch went bang and it was my colour kind of holiday My time away from everything I was feeling, Uh, and I got through that through medication and counselling. And then in the the summer of 2017, I can honestly say life felt as good and as peaceful as it ever had done. You know that all that kind of angst about really wish we could have another kid had gone, and we were at peace with who we were, and we were enjoying life. I'm in the second season of doing the Premier League on Sky. That was the the dream job when I arrived at Sky in 2005 was to get to do the Premier League, and Finally got there, second season, here we go. And suddenly out of nowhere in sort of late September, this, this I, I felt my mood changing. Uh, and interesting, talking to Gemma's mum, Wendy, in the last few weeks, she talks about how Gemma had picked up on something quite a lot earlier than I had and said she was actually worried about me. And this was back in August. And I felt my mood darkening a little bit, but I couldn't really put my finger on why. But then this anxiety came into play that I'd never experienced before. Suddenly, my job became my worst enemy. And it then over time, over those next few weeks, develops into panic attacks before going on air. I still managed to get on air. And actually, my my boss, in the weeks after Gemma went, when we talked more about what I was going through in that period, he said, do you know, the bizarre thing is, when I've watched those games back, where I know now what was happening to you before you went on air, your performance levels, if anything, went up again, up a level. I just said, well, that's just the remarkable thing about the brain. But it was, it was such a disconcerting period because everything you felt sure about in terms of my ability to do the job, I suddenly feel like I can't do it and my job's now becoming my enemy. And it's, it's a horrible place to be and everything you felt was sure in terms of the foundations of life just feel like they are completely wobbling and you don't recognize yourself anymore. And the scary thing is you think, I don't know how I get out of this.
1: So I guess people are a little bit more educated now when it comes to mental health, mm-hmm. but there will still be some in the church who will say, don't get depressed. You're a Christian. You've got the joy of the Lord. That's your strength. What would you say to those people?
2: I'd say they're talking rubbish. Sorry, I'm just going to say it. They are, because that's like saying you're a Christian, so you know, people don't die young. Well, they do. They do. And it's like saying, well, you're a Christian. You, know, you shouldn't have cancer. People get it, because we live in a broken world, and God does not promise us freedom from that. He doesn't. He promises us a whole host of things, he promises in the face of death eternal life he gives us hope and and so many things but he does not promise us an easy road if we decide to follow him and that maybe for some christians listening that that road has been really difficult because you know they have suffered with depression or anxiety or panic attacks or whatever it might be god doesn't promise you that that's not going to happen. But what you know is that his promise that I will be with you to the end of time is true. And even in your darkest moments, the God I believe in still sits alongside you and never leaves your side. And that's that's, a, that's That gives you, even in your darkest moments, hope, which is everything. You know, if you're going through grief or whatever it might be, to have hope is massive. But yeah, you, you, there are lots of Christian leaders out there who may not admit it. But I know that they, they've suffered with their own mental health issues, and it's actually far better for us to be real about this kind of stuff than pretending it doesn't happen and, and trying to argue in some bizarre way that it's it's you're a Christian so you should be alright. Because yeah, God did not ordain us to feel like this and to experience these problems, but this is the problem when sin entered the world. So did all these kind of things as well.
1: With that in mind, then for somebody who's listening now, they'll be at church on Sunday, mm. you know, despairing. I I I don't want to. Um, tell people that I'm going through mm. this difficult time, what would be your advice to them?
2: My advice would be find someone you trust, you know, someone you, you know that you can tell some tough stuff to, and please do tell them. The worst thing you can do, I, I did it for quite a while, the first time I got depression, I really kind of suffered in silence. Gemma knew what was going on, but really my friends didn't. And that means that in your really toughest times, that that feeling of loneliness and isolation becomes even more pronounced. And you know, when we draw into really isolated places in life, actually they can be quite dangerous places to go. And I just say, just find someone you can reach out to and just just tell them what's going on. Because I've found that the most therapeutic thing for me as well as you know, counseling has been hugely beneficial. It doesn't work for everyone, but it really works for me. I still see a grief counselor every single week, I and mean, we're 19 months on from losing Gemma. But I still find it enormously helpful, even on the weeks where I go in there thinking, actually I don't, really don't know what to talk about this week, but we always find something. Um, But it is so important to know you're not alone and it's really important to be able to talk about it. I think we're too scared, both Christians and non-Christians, with the whole word vulnerable. And we don't want to appear vulnerable. We want the world to see the other side of us. But actually I believe there is huge power in being vulnerable and open and honest about how you're feeling because you will draw strength from that that you never knew you had.
1: You're listening to the profile here on Premier Christian Radio in association with Premier Christianity Magazine. For a free copy of the mag, head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. We'll continue our conversation with Simon after this. Premier Christianity Magazine
0: in this month's issue. Former Blue Peter presenter Simon Thomas had it all a successful TV career, a loving family, and a strong faith. But when his wife died, his world fell apart. In the latest issue, Simon talks candidly about grief, unanswered prayer, and why death is not the end. Plus, Artie Kendall writes on the silent divorce between word and spirit. Nick Page tells us why questioning the Bible is a biblical thing to do, and the best-selling Christian author Philip Yancey shares his insights on the state of the global church. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward World-class Bible teachers, including Albert Moller and Alistair Begg, are coming to London. Ligonier Ministries' first-ever UK conference is taking place this September, and you can go free. You'll get two tickets worth £118, completely free of charge, when you subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine. Subscribe now and get your free tickets to the Light of the World conference at premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio Where faith comes to life.
1: Welcome back to The Profile Sponsored by Premier Christianity Magazine I'm Marcus Jones And this week I'm speaking to the TV presenter And Christian Simon Thomas In 2017 Simon's wife Gemma died suddenly And shortly after Simon hit the headlines For sharing his story of navigating grief here Simon tells me why he was utterly convinced Gemma would be okay after the doctor told her she had nothing to worry about.
2: Well I believed him you know I think because I'm in the midst of this depression and anxiety and panic attacks is I, I, I know looking back now I wasn't seeing things with the clarity I probably would have done. Whether that would have changed the outcome I very much doubt it. I I look back on those moments and and feel a huge still now sense of regret but I've learned to let go of it that I wasn't seeing things the way I see it now but then in the same way they say hindsight is a wonderful thing it's also equally a horrible thing when you look back and go oh, I should have done that I should never have walked out the doctor's surgery on that second visit that came two days after the first visit on the Wednesday when unbeknown to us at that point she's got less than a week to live and be happy that our doctor well it wasn't our doctors was a different one on this occasion says Having looked at all your vital signs, I'm satisfied there's nothing seriously wrong with you. I look back on it and I go, how did you hear those words and look at your wife and know that she's barely moving from bed? She, there is definitely something seriously wrong here. Hopefully nothing too serious. I, I had a huge amount of anger in the early days and regret about not seeing things with the clarity that I think I could have done, but actually it's a futile thing to get caught up in. If you allow yourself to become bitter and resentful towards the doctors, you know, that, with everything else you're dealing with, it's going to be so unhealthy and i i just had to learn you know to let it go and let go of the fact that she goes back in on the monday and again is told the same thing by our doctor like he had on the wednesday just go back and rest up and if it carries on come and see me again she's at this point less than four days away from going
1: so you get some advice from, from some friends who are medics and you end up in in a and e and you quickly get transferred to uh, another hospital mm. um you say in the book that you were utterly convinced she'd be okay. What mm. gave you that belief?
2: I think it's that. I think there was a degree of sh- there's that shock. You know, the, the momentum of events w- was so quick. You know, she gets diagnosed with a blood cancer of some sort in the early hours of that Tuesday morning in Reading. You know, I go back eventually to take Ethan to school to try and keep things as normal as possible. And then while we're travelling back to the Royal Barts in Reading, I get a text from saying you've got to get here now. I'm going to Oxford and it just felt like this this ball of momentum began to roll and suddenly I'm in the back of an ambulance. I actually took a video of some of the journey because I'm in shock. I'm not really computing what's going on. My wife is on a bed, she's got an oxygen mask to her face, and I'm chatting to the paramedic about how quickly they're driving up a road. I've gone up and down loads and times for work. Um and I think part of that belief she'd get better came out of shock, and you know, I'm not really understanding what's going on here. But actually, but at that point, we, we just knew it was a blood cancer, a leukemia of some sort. And actually, the reality is, for far, far more people than ever before, leukemia is not a death sentence. Lots of people get better from it, thankfully. So you're thinking, we'll probably be okay. And I think there's an element in which, faith-wise, you're thinking, God will pull us through this. He, he will. So there, there were enough reasons for me to think, uh, however hard this is going to be, uh, yeah, I do. I think we'll be okay. I right. kept saying that to Gemma.
1: I guess we go back to that story of your uh, c- coming to faith, where you feel God has saved you. Yeah. life. God does save people, yeah. and I'm, I'm sure you've seen other stories. Mm. Is that playing in the back of your mind? You know, God heals. God, God saves.
2: Yeah, and actually, interestingly, one of the one of the things I really remember Gemma saying, um, I think it was on the Wednesday, and we'd had some amazing couple of guys. One's called Carl Beach, who uh, you know has done you know being at Christian Vision for Men and all that. And Nathan Blackaby, who is Christian Vision for Men. You know, two amazing guys, I'm really good friends with them, just love them to bits. And they're amazing that they came, they drove for miles from their different place where they lived and came and prayed with Gemma that morning and prayed you know, for her to be healed. There was a real sense of optimism in the room that God was gonna deliver. And I remember in the afternoon saying, once Carl and Nathan had gone home, she said, Darl, she often talks of your testimony, you've got so many stories. And I've got other moments where God really did show up in a very direct way. She said, I'm hoping this becomes my testimony. And I said, I'm sure it will, because this will be an amazing testimony, you coming through this, and everything else you've been through. But it, it wasn't to be, but there was that sense that this, this would be an amazing story.
1: How do you reflect back on your prayers from that time? Because some would look at it as you praise, and the prayer wasn't answered. Mm. How do you reflect on that?
2: Yeah, <laughs> it was exactly that. My prayers were not answered. They were not, well, not in the way I was hoping anyway. You know, I prayed on that Friday morning as I'm told the news that you know, there's nothing more they can do for her. She's got these multiple bleeds in, in her head because of the, the damage the thickness of her blood with acute myeloid leukemia had caused, that there's no hope and barring a miracle she's gonna be gone by the end of today. And you know, I've never prayed with as much faith as I prayed for probably till about one o'clock that afternoon. Just my hand very rarely left her head barely noticed the doctors and nurses who were constantly coming in to check on her and just kept praying out loud, you know, God, God, heal this woman, you know, pray in the name of Jesus, you stop the bleeding now. And you please, Lord, do not leave my boy without a mum. I I wasn't thinking about myself at this point, but that thought of Ethan growing up without his mum and actually Gemma growing up, sorry, Gemma not getting to see her boy grow up, just kept pleading with God, please, 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 please stop the bleeding now. I had the most faith I've ever had that he would. I did, I felt genuinely full of faith that that bleeding would stop and she'd be okay. But at one o'clock I felt this sense, it's not gonna happen, it's not gonna happen. And interestingly, just a few weeks later, I went back to the hospital to sit down with Gemma's consultant, because the the speed of events of that week, and in particular that day, was so confusing and bewildering that you really didn't appreciate why what was happening was happening. So I went back just to find out, well, what, what did happen? Why did this complication occur? Um, and we talked to him and I, said, I just said to him, can I just ask you something, Andy? If, if Gemma had recovered, if say at one o'clock my prayers had been answered, what was the outlook for her? And he said, I'm very sad to say, but by that point she'd have been so brain damaged by what was happening in her brain that she'd have been unrecognisable from the Gemma you knew. And I thought, isn't that interesting that I had that sense at one o'clock that it was time now to say goodbye and use those last words four hours as it was to say goodbye and speak of stories of when we met and loads of stories about her and Ethan and everything. It's that I knew at that point. and And that's where looking back on it, you go, I don't understand God, why you let this happen. I know you didn't cause it to happen, but I don't understand why you didn't answer those prayers. But I know that even in the midst of those questions I had and that anger towards God, that somehow at one o'clock through some way, he, he kind of gently nudged me and said, now it's time for the goodbye. Um, because we wouldn't have got the Gemma back, we knew if she'd if she had recovered at that point. Uh, and he was, he was in the room that day. And I, I I did find it hard in the, the days and weeks afterwards when you know, bless them, it's not just Christians, but lots of people say they're trying, they're trying their very best to say the right thing, but they end up saying something a little bit trite and platitudeish. I Maybe mean, that's a word. Um, but things like you know, you will you'll never we'll never find out this side yeah. of heaven why yeah. what happened did happen. And I actually say to them. you know i'm not even sure in heaven i'll find out then Mm. because i i think i think based on what i read about heaven in the bible that it's going to be so beyond our wildest dreams and imagination it's going to be so far better than we can ever imagine the kind of when you get there none of that will matter Mm. it won't matter anymore so maybe i'll maybe i'll never find out and i had to let go of that the the search for the why I will never know the answer to, so instead of getting caught up with that, find a a reason to live again.
1: Yeah, look, I've I've shared a little bit of my story with you, but I've come a little bit, um, I feel at ease with it, the question of why, but the the question that I still don't feel I've heard a a good enough answer Mm. to is the why that person and why not that person. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I remember at at the time that my mum died, the whole church was praying. Yeah, our friends were praying. Yeah, um, you know we were praying with her in the room, but all all across our our small town that we um, we lived in, people were praying, mm. and and nothing happened. And nah. then when I was a teenager, um, we were living in Coventry, and um, a young lady in the church um, uh, fell ill with leukemia, and the whole church prayed. Yeah, and her prayers were answered. Yeah, and the church rightly celebrated yeah. that God had intervened. Yeah. But nobody has given me a good enough answer to this day, and and I still ask the question some 25 years on, why did he not save my mum, but he saved that other lady? I don't
2: think you'll ever get an answer to that question. I remember when I was younger reading a book called Fear No Evil by David Watson, who was a very prominent Christian figure in the 80s. I think he was at St. Michael of Belfry in York. Amazing ministry he had there. You know, he was a big favorite of my dad and lots of people at our church at the time, and he got bowel cancer and died from it and I've read I remember reading his book many many years ago I might actually read it again because I found it I found it fascinating that very question you know here's an amazing Christian leader who's humble who's wise who's doing some incredible things has got this wonderful ministry that's blessing so many people he's got armies of Christians praying for him he's got people like Louis Palau the great Christian leader coming to his bedside to pray for him. You know, if ever you were putting all the things in line to get healing, they were all there for David Watson, but he died. He died and his ministry ended. I mean, the art, you know, the, the after effects of what he did carried on. Of course they did. But in terms of his physical ministry, in terms of David Watson being here ended. And he sort of put the book down and go, I don't get it, God. I don't get why you've not intervened here. And yet you have in other people, you know, some friends of ours have just come through a really scary few months and, One of my closest friend's husbands just just come through lung cancer. And he was able to ring that bell on the ward that that signals he's through. He's through. He's come through the other side. And lots of people were praying for them. And I'll be honest enough to admit, of course, ultimately, I wanted him to get better. Of course I do. I want it more than anything. You know, to see, you know, I don't want to see my friend, you know, made a widow uh, in her early 40s. But also it was hard because, of course, when... It was announced that he'd come through it. You look at the Facebook posts and all the comments. You know, God is good. You know, wow, what an amazing God we have. And you do look at it and go, He wasn't so amazing for us. He really wasn't. Yeah. He didn't answer. He's answered your prayers, but he did not answer mine. And I think if you get too caught up in that, and the anger <laughs> and the bitterness and the questions will flow. That I think eventually it would lead me to a place where I'd go. Actually, I'm done yeah. with this faith lark because it's it's just not fair Uh, i think i just have to accept that even with faith life can still be very unfair and there are going to be questions that we will probably never find out the answer to um and you just i've just found i I just have to let go of it
1: it's not easy though is it no
2: no it's not it's not when yeah you're right when you hear other stories of where god has intervened and done these amazing things yeah of course you're left going right okay well where was he on that day
1: in the hospital, um, you've got all this uh, awful stuff going on around you. Mm. In the book, you talk about having this peace that passes all understanding. Mm. There'll be people listening and say, please tell me what that peace <laughs> feels like.
2: Well, it, it, it is a peace that passes all understanding because it comes into the... I never understood really what that verse meant. But it is. It's, right, it's a really nice, nice phrase, nice verse. I don't really get what it means. Is it just like just being in a happy place in life or, yeah, I don't know, your favourite beach or your favourite walk or whatever it might be. And I, just, I just feel peace, that peace that passes all understanding. I, I understood for the first time what actually that means and it's finding God's peace in the most chaotic and scary of places. Uh, and I think if I'm being honest, there was an element of shock on that Friday. There definitely was. You're not kind of computing. I think your brain is protecting you from the, the sheer horror of what's unfolding. But I still had peace. I remember going to, you know get gemma's death certificate on the tuesday so it's only what four days three days after she's gone and dreading it but walking into the st john radcliffe hospital in oxford to get the certificates and sitting in the death registry office and you're watching a, you know the last time i'd seen this happen was when i'm watching the woman in wandsworth signing ethan's birth certificate and now you're watching a woman signing 10 copies of your wife's death certificate and yet i felt this incredible peace i felt it again on the wednesday when we went to the funeral directors to put the funeral together, and our vicar David came with me, and he was just amazing. And again, I'm looking at a brochure. There's no no easy way to say this. I'm looking at a coffin brochure for my wife. And yet I felt this incredible peace, this, this sense of calm, that really in that place, doing that, I should never, ever have had. And that's what I understood it to be. And I remember vividly, probably the most powerful thing that happened came on the day of her funeral, and we i don't have a lot of memories of that day it was very very hazy um but i remember going to the crematorium later so we had the the celebrations i called it in in the morning at reading at our church greyfriars Uh, and then we had a a, i hate the word wake but the thing afterwards (laughs) one of Gemma's favorite places in sonning wake is just a rubbish word um and then we were the last slot back at reading crematorium in the afternoon and so back we went with just a small group of family and friends and i remember just the emotion of the day just hit me and I remember collapsing to the gravel and just screaming and when Gemma's hearse arrived just shouting this kind of blood-curdling no that sort of echoed through the the gloom that was descending because it was early December and I remember just a group of friends is gathering around me and kind of pulling me back to my feet and I remember I think it was Carl Beach actually was praying from the back in his gruff voice just the the God, that you'd hold this man right now, you'd hold their family as we go through the next few minutes and that your peace would descend on this place. We go into the room at the crematorium, it is everything you thought it would be, deeply depressing, gloomy, cold, horrible, just a horrible place. And as they bring Gemma's coffin in, it's feeling even more horrible. And and then we play this song, it's a worship song, and it talks about you bring light in the darkness, you bring hope, you bring joy. And as this guy called Chris Saburn, who I know from New Wine, who leads the worship at New Wine Sings. He's obviously not there, but the, the New Wine version plays out of the OK speakers. <laughs> this incredible, tangible peace descended on that room. So much so that a, a friend of mine... Um, his wife Nicola doesn't really have much of a faith she lost her brother to suicide two years ago she has stood next to a guy who used to be our curate in Reading now runs a church in Oxford called Dan I know Dan doesn't have a particularly good singing voice but as people began to sing along she says I'm listening to this guy singing and he sounds angelic and yet I know he can't sing and she said I felt a peace I've never ever felt before and I felt it as well, so much so that as I left that room, because people were kind of going up to the coffin and touching it and stuff, I just said, look, guys, sorry to break crematorium decorum, but she's not here. She's in heaven. I'm off. And I just went by Dahl and left with a smile on my face. Now, I'm not going to say everything after that was easy. Because it was deeply, deeply difficult. But in that moment, in that moment, in that most hopeless of places, this incredible peace descended that is even, even Having an impact on people who wouldn't even say they've got a faith—that's the peace that passes all understanding. That is not a room where peace should have dwelt.
1: Amazing. You talk about a moment um, in the book where it seems to be you're at your lowest, mm. whether it be a few weeks or a few months on, and you talk about vividly feeling the presence of Jesus weeping yeah. beside you. Yeah, this really kind of struck me. <laughs> talk me through that. And why that was such a, a comfort to you?
2: It's been interesting in, in those first few months, really gaining an understanding of the Trinity and how it works in a way I'd never really had before. So I came to realize that God the Father was the one that I could take all my anger to and I could shout blue murder out from the end of our garden, as I did for quite a few weeks in those early days, because our garden in reading sits just close to the river thames so i'd quite regularly be spotted by joggers thankfully over the other side of the thames on the towpath seeing this lunatic in a dressing gown and wellington boots screaming blue murder at god but that's because the god i follow i know is big enough he's big enough to take me ranting at him and so i could throw all my anger all my questions all my angst onto him because i know that god is beyond big enough to take it god the holy spirit is the one that came alongside us in the crematorium that day and brought that peace that passes all understanding, that peace in the most chaotic of places. That's where the spirit works. I was like, cracky, I'm beginning to understand this in a tangible way for the first time. I kind of known it, but now I'm feeling it. And in terms of God the Son, and that story you, you refer to came, I think on the second Saturday. And you know, as anybody listening or watching who's gone through grief, probably most people will know that sleep becomes your enemy for a while, and it really does. It just shakes your world up. And I could never stay asleep, so I was always awake from sort of half two. That was bad, half three was all right, half four I considered in the early weeks to be a layin. It was that bad and I just one Saturday morning been up since about half two and I was just sitting in our lounge just sort of crying and just I just felt broken, absolutely broken. And I thought I'm just gonna take myself off for a walk my sister Becky was staying, had come down. I thought I don't wanna talk to anyone right now. And I just sort of walked down the garden, went through the gate at the, well, the garden and went to Sit by the Thames. I just sat next to a tree, uh, you know. And for a time, when anybody goes through loss, there is a period you go through where it does feel like all the colour has been drawn out of life. That everything's become black and white and hopeless and joyless. You can't ever begin to imagine a day where you'd ever feel joy again, and you you don't want to because you feel well. If I if I feel joy again, then I've forgotten the woman I love but I remember sitting by that tree and thinking there is no joy left this, this, this landscape I, this land I now inhabit feels totally devoid of any hope and I just wanted to roll in I wanted at that point I wanted to end it um, and as that thought came into my head two things happened one was just the vivid vivid face of Ethan looking at me and with the same eyes that he looked at me the night I told him my mum had gone but I actually felt I could just sense this, this presence alongside me and it felt like I could almost see Jesus just sitting next to me and he's not saying anything, but he's weeping tears with me. And that's God the Son. God the Father is one I can shout blue murder at. God the Son is the one, as he did in the Bible, is the one who gets alongside the brokenhearted. He gets alongside the people who are difficult for others to get alongside. And just knowing that he understood, he understands, he, 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 he endured what it's like to experience true darkness where there is no light in order that we never have to quite experience that and to know that he understands that and he I just felt in that morning alongside me and it gave me the strength to get back on my feet and walk back into the house and go somehow somehow I'm going to find a way through this
1: I don't think I've heard a better explanation of the Trinity (laughs) in in all my times it's um yeah it's really powerful Mm. So to the person who's going through grief then, um, I guess there's a a kind of a theme throughout the book where there's this uh, searching for light in the darkness. Yes. Um, It sounds simple, but when you're in the darkness, finding that light can be really difficult. Really hard. Yeah. What's your advice to someone searching for that light?
2: It's about just driving with every ounce of strength you've got through those low times, those dark times, those hopeless times. And learning to understand, you know, I, I remember people saying to me who knew what they were talking about in the early days, you know, it will one day get easier. When you're in the midst of it, that is an affront. I talk about in the book, it feels like an affront. How dare you suggest this is going to get easier? But of course they're right, it does. And I describe it as, as time goes on. I just try and encourage people going through this, so just hang on in there with whatever you've got strength-wise left. Hang on, and if it's just by one finger, hang on with that one finger. But just get through the first hour, it's the early stages. Then get through the morning, then get through the afternoon, then just concentrate, can I get myself through today? And then you'll, before you know it, suddenly you're getting through the week and then you're somehow getting through the month. And bit by bit, the sun begins to break through again and it begins to shine in patches, but then it goes gloomy again and another wave comes and hits you from behind. But as time goes on, it elongates.
1: What would the grief process have looked like had you not had faith?
2: It's an interesting question, I've been asked that once or twice and I look at it in one way and say that in some ways it would have been less complicated because if I take faith out the equation, if I take a belief in God out of the equation then those questions about where were you God on that Friday they don't exist because if I don't believe in a God there's no questions to ask. So in some ways having a faith adds another layer what already is really, really difficult in that on top of everything you're feeling I've now got these questions about well who on earth is this God I follow? What is his character? Why does he allow these kind of things to happen? Why if I pray please don't let Ethan grow up without a mum does he allow that to happen? No, because God could have chosen to intervene like we've been talking about as he does with other people for whatever reason didn't in that. I wouldn't be dealing with those questions. I'd just be getting on with life and dealing with grief and all the pain that would still be there regardless of whether I have a faith or not. But I can't imagine going through this without hope. I can't. I cannot imagine what it must be like to lose your loved one and to see your boy lose his mum and to know there is no hope of him ever seeing mum again. There is no hope of life after all this. I could not, I don't know how I'd have navigated it. But if I take God out of the equation, a lot of that hope dies. And I quite simply don't know how people deal with death and with grief when essentially they don't have any hope of this being anymore. And was, there's was one line I, I wrote in the book, you know, the hymn, you know, line be the glory where it says death has lost its sting. And I remember seeing that line and thinking about it when I was writing and I thought, you know what, death hasn't lost its sting. Because actually in some ways you've seen that line, we know what ultimately it's talking about, but death is still incredibly painful and it still stings like hell. The great thing is when you have faith in God is that it's not a fatal sting anymore. And that's the big difference.
1: Final question. What's next? This wasn't, I guess, the the path you expected life to, to bring you. You've uh, in a situation where you've given up part of your, your work. Mm. Um, yeah, what does the future hold?
2: Well, I, I describe it, it's, it's, it's a new chapter. It's a new chapter and chapter one ended in a way that none of us wanted and none of us expected. But that chapter has closed. And I know that Gemma, if she was here right now, would say, Simon, you've got to... You've got to move on with life. You've got to be there for Ethan. You've got to carry on savouring life and enjoying it because I want that for my boy. I don't want you to be stuck in what happened 19 months ago. You've got to move forward. You know, you never get over the loss of someone. There's no way, round grief, there's no way over it, but there is a, a narrow way through it, which, you know, Dan Walker talks about in The Forward. And for me now, I, I do look forward with, with optimism. And actually, bizarre though this may sound to some people, I, I feel excited because it's it's not the future that any of us would have chosen, but we've been given, we've been given this new chapter. And it's now, the only question is, what are you gonna do? What kind of story are you gonna write? Life is there to be cherished. We only get one shot of this life on earth. I don't wanna to go to heaven anytime soon. I'm not in a rush to get there. I wanna enjoy, I wanna save a life. And I believe that we'll look back in years to come and however painful that period was and however painful at times Ethan's life has been, we'll look back and go, you know what? We made something really good out of something really hard.
1: Well, that was the TV presenter, Simon Thomas, sharing his story with me, Marcus Jones. And you can read more about his story by reading his book, Love Interrupted. You've been listening to The Profile, sponsored by Premier Christianity magazine. To pick up a free copy of the magazine, head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample.